When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Otessa Moshfeg, whose new book, Lapvona, has just been published, appeared live and in person at Books and Books last week. And her conversation with Amanda Keeley is reprised on this edition of The Literary Life. Books and Books' own Christina Nasti opens the program, which took place in front of a live audience. We have the marvelous Otessa Moshfeg in our midst. And on behalf of all of us at Books and Books, I have the pleasure of welcoming you to an evening with Otessa to discuss her new novel, Lapvona, published by our friends at Penguin Press. Otessa's bio is deceptively simple. Her work is not. It's about one short paragraph long. So I'll tell you, she's a fiction writer from New England that her first novel, Eileen, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Man Booker Prize, and won the Penn Hemingway Award for debut fiction, and that My Year of Rest and Relaxation and Death in Her Hands, her second and third novels, were New York Times bestsellers. She's also the author of the short story collection, Homesick for Another World, and a novella, McGlue. So that's her bio. But what's great about tonight is that we're going to have a chance to go a little deeper into all of this and hopefully get a little closer to a writer who never ceases to amaze. Publishers Weekly called Lavona a triumph, a deliciously quirky medieval tale that revolves around a disabled shepherd boy's test of faith. Moshfeg's picture of medieval cruelty includes unsparing accounts of torture, rape, cannibalism, and witchcraft, and the narrative tosses readers through a series of dizzying reversals. So fasten your seatbelts, folks. Throughout, Moshfeg brings her trademark fascination with a grotesque to depictions of the pandemic, inequality, and governmental corruption making them feel both uncanny and all too familiar. To moderate this evening's program, we're joined by Amanda Season Keeley, a visual artist, curator, and writer who received her MFA in sculpture from Parsons School of Art and Design. And now, without further ado, let's give our guests a warm Miami welcome.
we're so uh, we're so honored that you're here in Miami and to join us and talk about your new work. It's totally my pleasure. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to start because as a visual artist, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be an artist at an early age, and I wanted to ask you about your trajectory of becoming a writer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't start out as a writer. I started out as a classical pianist. Wow. I was raised by two classical musicians. My parents met in conservatory, and the culture of the family was really music-oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I fell in love with the piano and really kind of put everything I had into it. And that saved me from... Um, I guess a lot of other experiences that you have as a kid. Um, so I sort of blame some of my weirdness on that. It's funny how things happen because I, I wanted to go to this really prestigious arts and uh, performing arts academy in Michigan for mm -hmm. a summer program, but I missed the deadline to apply as a pianist. And I was really pissed at my mom because she called me at, at school and said, well, you know, you, it's too late to go for piano. So I signed you up for creative writing. Uh, and I was like, ah, oh, how could you? Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess I went into it with, uh, you know, a little bit of like resentment. Um, but from the beginning, I was completely blown away. Um, I had never taken, uh, I was 13, I'd never taken a creative writing class or even really tried to write mm -hmm. anything beyond my homework assignments. And I had a really inspiring teacher there who became a longtime mentor for me. And so all through high school, I continued to, you know, pursue piano but then I also had this secret thing that was, a, it was a secret because it was only me. No one could hear me mm -hmm. practicing. Yeah. And um, every day I wrote a short story and sent it to my mentor in the mail. And every day he, he wrote back. Um, so it was like, you know, I, I, f I feel I was really lucky to have someone both encourage me, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in an art form that really no one should <laughs> <laughs> be encouraged to pursue as a career. Well, as an it, artist, it's hard too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, it was an it, it was this incredible blessing that I could start out as a writer, not feeling like I was writing into a void or just writing for myself. That mm -hmm. I was writing for a reader, for readers, and um, I think that was really important. Um, and then, when I was seventeen, I decided to give up the piano. And like I told you, I gave up tennis. Exactly. <laughs> we haven't actually met, uh, so this is the first time we're able to, um, you know, kind of get to know each other, and it makes it very spontaneous. Yes. <laughs> um, regarding like your past work, like the year of rest and relaxation, and then shifting into Lopnova. Um, you know, the year of rest and relaxation was mind-blowing to me. I'd never uh, read a, a novel that was so radical 
Um, and also being living in New York and having gone through, did you live in New York? How did you know yeah. New York so well? Well, I did live in New York. Did when you I, live on the Upper East Side? Um, I well, I went to school in the Upper West Side, and then okay. I lived in the East Village in Brooklyn. But I worked for this incredible woman who lived on the Upper East Side in Gracie Square. Um, she was an oral historian, and um, you know, I took I took the subway there every day and got to know it really, really well. Oh yeah, and and kind of the underbelly of New York, and also me uh, having worked in the art world, and also having worked in the music industry. I was Yoko Ono's personal assistant for eight oh, years, wow. um, and so kind of really got to know the grit of the city. Um, some of the things that that really I uh, that resonated with me to my year of rest and relaxation was I did go through a very dark period and I really kind of understood your character and so I think it was an identity like identified with her in some ways and it was it's a scary it's very <laughs> scary but it's very powerful Thank you. and your development of characters and your power of observation um, and so Lopnova is a step is an entirely different uh book but it's yeah. also extremely radical um i wanted to first start with like did you write it during the pandemic i did i i wasn't even expecting to get into another novel i had another long-term novel project that i had been working on but um when lockdown happened, it, it really, I mean, I think this happened to a lot of people. Yeah. We all, we all had many different experiences. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I need something. Yeah. I need something. Yeah. Um, and because I write novels, it's like, I need a novel. Yeah. I need a novel to carry me through this experience. And I need a novel to archive this experience. Um, and it was a project that, um, you know, let me escape to a completely different world. I mean, not that it was like, you know, my fantasy. Well, I guess it was kind of my fantasy world in a very dark way. Um, but, you know, outside of the confines of my home and neighborhood um, to another time and into this into this place and time where, um, yes, life was extremely difficult pain was real pain, um, your fate, you know, you, it seems like an individual had much less control over their fate, um, in that time, but also because it takes place in the late middle ages and because of the genre that that era evokes, I also understood that I was getting into a little bit of a magic. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, I wanted, I was trying to, when I was reading it, I was, I actually started a family tree. Wow. Because I had, there's so many twists and turns and I'm not going, there, there, I'm not giving things away because you have to read the book yourself. Um, but I actually started because everything kind of sh like shifts so much of who's is related to who. And there's a lot of like, you know, turns and twists. Um, and I was trying to figure out the time period and how you got inspired to create this mystical place of, of Lapnova. Well, um, you know, yeah, Lapvona is in a real place. Yeah. 
but um, it, I mean, this maybe isn't the most interesting way to answer, but I was thinking very broadly about human history, mm -hmm. given that I was stuck inside and there was a global pandemic and suddenly my, you know, totally self-centered world also included a global perspective in a new way. And um, I started thinking about my ancestry okay. and something that my mom has told me. It's kind of like, you know, one of the cards she plays whenever I present to her um, as being unsure of myself or, un, you know, unwilling to go through something difficult. She'd always say, like, Tessie, don't forget, we come from pirates, <laughs> and so I was like, hmm, is that really true? <laughs> so I started doing some research on, my mother's from um, Croatia, so I started researching uh, piracy on the Adriatic Sea and got into a little bit of medieval history. And then it's like, okay, I can't write a pirate novel, that doesn't feel right. Also, I've already written a book that takes place in on a boat, um, which is McGlue, which was my very first book. It's like, okay, I'm not doing that again. So I went into the land. And the first thing that I did was um, like very visually tried to understand the geography of the place. Yes. And like even the topography of the place, because, you know, in uh, in this kind of fiefdom, there would there's a lord and that lord's manor is usually on a hill where it's safe. And then, you know, I had to ask myself, where where would the fields be and where where would the homes be and where would the forest be? And where would it be for hunting? And would there be roads? Where would the roads lead? And so what I designed was a, a place called Lapvona that was a very special and isolated place. And, it, and I liked that it was isolated because I could create, well, it was isolated and, and therefore it was vulnerable. And we sort of understand that from the first page because the book opens with uh, an, the fallout from an attack by bandits. And, um, you know, we understand that there's, some, there's something of great value in Lapvona. And, they, you know, a couple times we hear, like, Lapvona dirt is good dirt. The crops that grow there are of really high value. And so, you know, that makes it special but also vulnerable. Right. Um, yeah, I love that you opened the book with this I Feel Stupid When I Pray by Demi uh, Lovato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what am I getting into? <laughs> yeah, when I read it, I like was kind of uh, contextualizing it with like Viking and, and medieval and how, like, how could I, as a reader... Um, kind of come to terms with the turmoil and the darkness within the book. And I was thinking of like Nordic uh, fairy tales. And there's a lot of, you know, torture and pillaging and rape and, um, you know, all of these, the, this uh, corruption. Um, I wanted to ask you about Merrick, like, like, and how, like, did you develop this character so deeply? Because I felt like, you know, we became a part of him and through his journey. Yeah. Well, so I guess I should preface this with um, it's the first novel I've written in the third person. 
And that was an interesting place for me to begin because in my past books, like my year of rest and relaxation and my first novel, Eileen, especially, those are books that are narrated by the protagonist from that person's like deep interior. So when you're reading the book, it's almost as though Eileen or the protagonist in my year is speaking directly to you. And so I had to figure out what my approach was, like how far was I from my characters if if I'm the author and my narrator is not a character, mm-hmm. but the storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I had to sort of figure out the tone and style and the relationship between um, how the narrative could move and the characters it was moving toward and away from. And Marek was... Um, Mark, for me, was really part of the conception of the book to begin with. Um, and, and weirdly enough, his uh, something happens at the beginning of the book. Marek does something to someone else. And that act sets the whole story in motion for this one year uh, in Lapthona from spring to spring. And I, yeah. And so I, I want, I knew that Mark was in some ways my central character and I wanted to feel like I could be close to him and still surprised by him. So I sort of gave him some really complex issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, it's, it is quite a, uh, a story. Um, and to follow, and I just, I was so concerned and confused and then with his relationships with his family and kind of as the story unfolds, um, you know, really, really wanting him, like I have all these notes that I wrote to myself as I was uh, reading it, but I, I was at the, I was like, I want, you know, him to survive Mm. and I want him to find happiness and love and light and, you know, the story is a very, you know, as I said, there will be no spoiler alert, but uh, it's just like, it's just heartbreaking, too. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to note that Marek is like 12 years old. Yeah. And. Um, but these are very, very difficult times. I mean, yeah. it, think about the think about the reality of living in like a medieval town with a fiefdom with a lord that controls everything who i also wanted to ask about mm-hmm. was about Willem, which i it, like for me it was like villain but Willem um also the only way i could identify or figure him out was uh by i kind of was modeling him on, on ex-president trump to be honest that's <laughs> fair fair comparison yeah because his a lot of his actions and the way he treated people and um i was like okay how, how can i you know how how because you know we live live in these times and there's a lot of dark excuse my language shit going on and so i was like you know how can i figure out who this villain is or villain and i was like okay he's trump he's trump <laughs> yeah i mean that they're, they're not yeah <laughs> like if trump was living in medieval times okay maybe <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the thing I I wanted 
to play with with William, who is this, you know, who occupies the, the seat as the Lord only because he was born into it. Right. He's absolutely like the if, if, if it was a democracy, like it would be totally insane that he had been elected huh. to yeah. be the person <laughs> to make decisions on behalf of the villagers. But um, William is kind of defined by this phenomenon inside him, which is a vacuous black hole. And um, it's not something you can see, but you can sort of see evidence of it. Like he's voraciously hungry and thirsty, and yet he's rail thin, constantly is eating, is like being fed. He needs constant entertainment. Boredom for him is just absolutely intolerable. Um, he needs to constantly be the center of attention and needs to feel important and like his life journey is the main story going on. But he isn't without, um, you know, humor. He, well, he loves to be entertained. He, he, and, and he isn't, you know, I, I hesitate to say he's evil because, I mean, I do hesitate because he is... You know, he has the innocence of someone who... Um, they, well, they just don't know any better. They, it's just his stupidity. Yeah. And, you know, he cannot see beyond himself because he's never been forced to. Yeah. In Japanese, there's something called a hungry ghost, and it's something that you can uh, you can constantly be eating and fed, and you're always wanting. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be complete um, or calm, you know? Uh, sad. Yeah, it is sad. Uh, what, a, what about um, also the, you know, Agatha and I think Ina, which who I called the shrew. <laughs> and she's also the witch of the, you know, like the local healer, the shaman, the, the witch, the shrew of the village. I found her character absolutely fascinating as well. Yeah. Ina is not like the other characters. Yeah, she's she is kind of from a different world, or rather, she she's from Lapvona originally, but she went through a lot like a, this horrible experience that kind of transforms her. Um, and by the time we're in the book, you know, who Ina could be a hundred or two hundred or three hundred years old. We don't know. She has that kind of mystical quality, yeah. witch like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you ever have anyone like ask you why you write about such like dark darkness? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> All the time. Do you feel comfortable answering that for our audience? Um, I mean, I, yeah. Um, why do I write about such darkness? Well, I, you know, I guess my first, my first thought is like, well, I, I kind of see myself as part comedian Mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and um comedy is about like the like the horror of humanity yeah. like trying to find the absurdity and humor in it exactly um i'm also you know kind of i've a i'm i'm like a my fascination is dark my imagination is dark i'm not you know i'm married to someone whose whose imagination is like you know stars and galaxies and like amazing animals and it's like wow and i'm like <laughs> murder you know 
So we we watch really different kinds of television. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I've always, I've always been obsessed with death. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. um, as a both as a touchstone for my way of understanding what divinity is and also connecting to what it is to be alive. So like I, when I'm like, oftentimes my contemplation of God is also, it's like synonymous sometimes with the contemplation of death. Right. So I'm interested in death. Well, everything, you know, with life has a cycle that goes into death. And so it's all part life. And with like the yin is the yang. Exactly. Yeah. Are you, you know, within the book, it is based on Christianity. Um, do you study religion at all? Or are you? No. You all, all of my, I'm kind of like a villager in Lapona. Okay. <laughs> so so in, in Lapona, they're, they're, like, the people are very pious, or so they, they think, and they're, they're also illiterate, and they don't own Bibles or anything like that. And they don't eat meat. They don't, oh, yeah, they're all vegetarian. Um, yeah. And they get all of their religious training from the, their priest, Father their Barnabas. Priest. The priest. Yeah. Who was miseducated and really doesn't care, um, is, is a heathen, really, and is working um, on behalf of Villiam. So Don't give too much away. Okay, well, okay, he's a corrupt <laughs> priest. He's not a real priest. And so they they learn about Christianity sort of through these bad lessons and lies and lies and through osmosis from Mm. you know what other people say and i feel like that's kind of i i have gathered what i've gathered about christianity mostly from osmosis and then like christian radio Mm. which i love i love (laughs) really oh yeah uh that's funny um, I, you know, do you listen to music? Is not, music not very much. Any, okay. Oh, I mean, I do listen to music. I, I mean, I definitely do, but I'm hypersensitive to music. So I listen to it like, it's like, I'm going to listen to it. Okay. Not just like have music on. But yeah, yeah, I'm always, I'm heavily influenced by music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was thinking about, I have two quotes that, and then we can kind of start to wrap it up, but I have two quotes that I wrote down that, you know, when I think about, you know, this darkness and this evil, and then I'm thinking about how other artists and musicians and writers address this, and it is part of life. Um, And we see so much going on around us within the world. And, you know, also, ironically, there is a woman in your book who tries to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, look what happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. So um, I try to see things from all different sides. And I have two quotes I was going to read. One is a Lou Reed quote from It's a Perfect Day. And he says, you're you're going to reap just what you sow. Yeah. And that for me was like the perfect like quote that kind of finalizes this book for me. And the second one is by a a group I just didn't know very much called The Knife. They're from the UK. And they have a a song called Marble House. So instead of a glass house, it's the marble house. And they, in the lyrics say, the seeds I sow will grow up as prisoners too. Oh man. 
So that's, that's, uh, (laughs) yeah, but you know, this is also artists work with us and write about this and are, you know, even though it is, you know, difficult material, it's also part, you know, there is, there dark is part of the light and without it, they can't have each other. I agree. So thank you. Do the audience have any questions? Does anybody have questions? So I wanted to go back to the third person thing and, um, you know, knowing how your other novels are all like entirely rooted in, in character and, um, did you have like challenges in doing third person? I, I can't remember if you if you wrote third person short stories in a uh, few in, in Homesick. Only um, a few. Okay, and w- was that a challenge? And, and was there like anything you compared that to, or like were you reading other things during that time that kind of gave you you know some kind of perspective on writing in the third person and in that type of setting? Well, I did do some research, but I didn't do too much. Um, I did just enough. <laughs> So that I didn't, I, I felt like I could write freely um, and really create the world that I wanted rather than, uh, you know, um, facsimile. But um, it was, you know, I, I was nervous about writing in the third person, but I'm sort of always nervous when, when I'm just discovering the, a voice for the first time. And... Um, you know, the thing that surprised me was I, I think I'd had this stupid preconception about third person that it was like somehow stiff and rigid. Um, and I, what I discovered that was that it was totally the opposite, that I could, like writing in the third person, I could get so close to a character, go in t- inside a character, go back in time with that character in their mind and then bust out and be in a completely different place, observing and describing something totally different. And that was just this really, um, it, it felt like the sky had opened. Because when, I have to do a little bit of this when I'm writing books like Eileen, you know, I have to kind of put blinders on, so just stay focused. But with, um, Lapvona, I just, I don't know. I, it was a challenge to get there, but then when I was there, I felt really free. Hi there. Um, thanks for coming. Hi. Um, yeah, I, um, I had a question about Eileen. Uh, was there a, a seed or a moment or a person that kind of sparked that happening when you started to write that? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, and it was, uh, something I heard about two years prior to even understanding that I was going to write Eileen. I had just moved to LA. This was 2011. And within a couple of weeks, I had like a a vague friend sort of invited me along to a dinner with some other friends. And just making chit chat with this guy, um, I said, well, what, you know, what did you do today? And he said that he'd been working on his documentary and had spent the entire day interviewing a very young man who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole for murdering his dad. And basically told me the story which became, in Eileen, the story of Lee Polk. And, um, you know, the details of that and the mother's 
the mother's complicit actions um, horrified me so much that, I mean, when I decided I wanted to write a novel, it was like, I, that I could not ignore that. I was like, well, that feels like the most important thing in the world, asking, asking the question, like, how, why do we do horrible things we know are horrible? How could we justify that? And I was, I mean, that was kind of the question I wanted to answer, if, if, if it was even possible to answer it. So my question's revolving um, around the, a year of rest and relaxation. Personally, that was a very moving book to me, especially during my first year of college. So I was wondering um, kind of what was the inspiration around that book for you and what ended up uh, having you decide to even write it in the first place? It's, it's a funny one because usually I know when I'm writing a book, but I, I started it really casually. Um, I was staying with that friend who is an oral historian on, um, on the Upper East Side for the summer. And um, I was editing her book with her and just decided I was going to work on something new. And I think that there was no pressure, so I just sort of started writing this girl that I could imagine in this neighborhood and then it just I just got kind of sucked in and that's how it started um so a lot of your books obviously explore sort of the feeling of disgust um and I think it's like for some reason such a human feeling um and I've read some of Lapfona and no matter how outlandish it is it feels human and like I like you said you sort of dug deep on like ancestral stuff and I read it and I'm like oh my god this is what people did back then, and now we're here. Um, we get to go sit and watch authors and all that, and this is what they did. Do you often feel that when you don't censor yourself and you allow yourself to feel these very like disgusting and like I feel like a lot of people are kind of scared to look into that and write into that, do you feel as though it kind of fleshes out your stories more and it makes you feel more human? And I think um, when I read them and there's parts that are disgusting, it's you know you don't necessarily like it or agree with it, but it feels very human and mm. like real. Yeah, I just can't I just can't get away from it. For me, it's such a part of my human experience. Yeah. Not necessarily the disgust, but like bot having a body. Partly um Marek's character, you know, and he's he's described very specifically as having a very particular kind of body. And I was interested in having a character who had a body that I, f I could relate to. Because I, w when I was adolescent, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. And it, like, you know, this is like right when puberty was starting and I, it was just horrifying. I was in a back brace. And since then, I've had chronic pain. And so my, like, I, you know, it's it, like in a way it's a blessing because I can never forget that I have a body, even though I'm like, ah, you know, all the time. But um, just in, in any kind of portrait of a person when I'm writing, I imagine what it feels like to embody them. And then I imagine their relationship with their body. And, you know, certain people are disgusting. Um, <laughs> 
and you know we can all be disgusted so i don't know i mean disgust is i'm 41 i i think i spent like the first 38 years of my life where disgust was my primary emotion <laughs> i'm like finally growing out of it a little bit but i'm not you know i still i still need it so it's so it's still around and and it's part of my emotion like it's big in my emotional vocabulary and how I see you know people so you described someone who mentored you when you were a teenager I think it may have been Interlochen that was a guess good guess Um, and has that person continued to have a role in your life he was a teacher who who sort of allowed me to love writing as much as I did and to love words. I mean, it just sounds, it sounds so basic, but like the love of the English language, like I'm in love with the English language. Um, and I think we maybe shared that. And so when you see someone working in they're in, in love with it, sort of opens you to the possibility that you can do that too. And, um, and that it's worthy like the, the the practice and learning and trying is all worth it, you know, because there's something um, there 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 is ecstasy to be found, and that's what that that teacher his name was Peter Marcus was like, that that teacher really he he got the ecstasy co- <laughs> component of the experience. Your characters in um, Eileen and my year of rest and relaxation are very like, I kind of want to say like dark and like just like kind of careless. Uh, So how did you like come up with these characters and while writing the books, like how did you like find yourself like in the character, feeling what they feel, like seeing what they see? How like how would you say you did that and how do you think like you, you came about? How do you think it made you feel? Well... What I can say is, when I first started writing, um, like what I thought was going to be a novel, but ended up being a very short novel called McGlue. It was a novella. I wrote with I wrote kind of accidentally, but on purpose, in front of a mirror, and I saw that I would kind of forget myself and get really into character and in the voice and could write freely and then I would look in the mirror and I like had assumed like a completely different posture and um you know my face was all because that Miglu was always drunk <laughs> like, um so I saw that like yeah the sort of this method acting way of occupying your your narrator and your character was helpful um with Eileen, Eileen is an interesting one because she's telling her story as an old woman looking back. And, and that sort of perspective was one that I, I, that didn't come easily to me because I wrote the book and I was, you know, in my early 30s. And um, I had to both imagine what it would be like to be, you know, 80 thinking back to being 24 and then imagine being 24 and being this kind of disturbed girl 
who was disturbed because she was trapped in a society and culture that was based on denial and lies and oppression. So, yeah, that was more, that was harder in a way. And then, um, and it didn't, I mean, it didn't affect me, but there's this kind of miraculous thing that happens in the uh, creative process. And I wonder if this is true for you too, okay. Amanda. Please but tell. Um, like when you're working on something, like maybe, <clears throat> maybe even just from the c conception or decision to work on something, everything in your life starts to seem like it's trying to teach you something about your project. Oh, completely. Yeah. It's um, it's like 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 accidents or uh, serendipity. Um, you know, and I was telling you about a project I have coming up and, you know, it's like they, everything kind of connects and starts speaking to me in my life. Um, it's like you're almost attracting certain energy because you're so consumed with this project, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's within the artistic and the visual field, the same thing. Um, and it's just like, I think, you know, and I really believe in like paying attention to the signs. Yeah, it's it's magical. Yeah, yeah. So that that what what happened after I wrote Eileen, my sister got a job working in a men's prison, <laughs> and then my someone very 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 close to me, um, got sentenced to like a three year like a three year stint in jail, and I was. Like, oh my God, what have I done? That kind of thing. And then with my year of rest and relaxation, that character actually just like, it came really naturally. It was just like, she was someone that I like, you know, zeroed in on and um, got to know, she kind of told me who she was. Um, but weirdly, I had no problem sleeping the entire time I was writing that book, but the moment I handed it in, I had terrible insomnia. And so I started a little, you know, medicine cabinet of my own, which was terrible. <laughs> Hopefully not to not not to that. No, degree. I didn't I didn't have the Dr. Tuttle on my side, thank God. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that um it was so provocative and then that's why I was really excited to have this opportunity to speak with you. Um, I just find your work to be extremely radical, and it really pushes the boundaries of literature and of fiction. So. You said you like listening to church radio? Christian radio. Christian radio, yeah. <laughs> why? Well, because it's, you know, they're, first of all, so passionate, you know? And second of all, it's a rhetoric that is completely foreign to me. And some, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, and I can get really upset. But it, it always, it always feels um, new. I mean, it's just, I, yeah. And then at other times, I, it resonates so deeply that I will be like driving and crying, or like, like I need to call my mom, you know. Um, I mean, I just think it's like in in some. I mean, it, in some ways, it doesn't matter what religion it it would. It just there's there's no Jewish radio or Islamic radio or there isn't any Buddhist radio that I know of. So and maybe it's just you know people talking about their relationship to God 
and their experience um, living a human life is just, you know, awesome. And sorry, last part of the yeah. question. Does it speak to your writing at all? Does it influence it? Do you? It did. I mean, I think what I understand from Christianity definitely got into Lapvona. Um, so some of the stories are, are influence inf or influential. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's also something that, you know, when I'd said medieval and then Viking and Nordic, um, I was also thinking of biblical and, you know, within the Bible, uh, it's not, not all happy rays and sunshine. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it is an interesting kind of, uh, literature. And then, you know, there is a Christianity component within this and particularly with this, uh, you know, this priest who really doesn't, you know, he's basically doesn't, he's making it up as he goes along. I think he's really just a inside, inside ear for the villain. I've given part of it away, but <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, thank you for coming as well. Um, I'm curious about the Demi Lovato quote at the beginning, and I want to know if you feel stupid when you pray, if you pray. Um, so I think I had I discovered this performance that they did um, on YouTube. At, I think it was the 2020 Grammys, and um, Demi Lovato per was performing a song she wrote called anyone and she had just come back from like having almost died from a drug overdose and you know it's a really emotional song about sort of calling out to anyone to to be seen <laughs> to be seen and heard it's like and can anyone help me like am i am i all alone because that's how I feel. And um, in this performance, she begins, and she starts to sing, and she's crying. And if you ever tried to sing and cry at the same time, it doesn't work. <laughs> but it's, so she stops, and the pianist stops, and there's like, you know, they wait, and she kind of like pulls herself together, and then delivers this incredible performance which blew me away. Like, if if she hadn't had that false start, I would have been blown away. But just the fact that she got... Sorry, I, I think she, they go by they. Um, they got themselves together and, like, channeled her... Their, their <laughs> emotions into this performance, which took so much strength that it sort of became part of the song. And the lyric, I feel stupid when I pray, I just thought it was so, it, it just, it, it, when I heard it, I was like, oh, I can't believe they said that. You know, it shocked me. And then I started thinking about what it might mean, like it, and what it means to me and why I had feelings about it. And um, I mean, it's, it's a bigger conversation, I'm not, good at having but I do sometimes feel stupid when I pray because I feel like I might just be stupid but I don't you know but I think the more interesting question is is praying stupid I mean I don't think so 
but it's a question that the book is sort of asking. So in reading My Year of Rest and Relaxation, this, the character sort of fixates um, on weight a bit. I was curious, like, what is, what is weight sort of a metaphor for and how does it sort of manifest through your characters? Well, in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, the protagonist is on a mission to erase herself. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of crossover from you know, how she tries to erase her trauma and her grief from having lost her parents and her unhappiness um, and also erasing, like, the parts of herself that make her her, like, her actual flesh. And, um, and I felt like a portrait of a woman who's, uh, you know, born in the mid-'70s and it goes to college and the 90s and is, you know, a young woman at the turn of the millennium, you know, kind of came of age in a time that was so taught. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if it was more toxic, but what was happening culturally with like heroin chic and Kate Moss and, um, you know, all these new ways of seeing women's bodies as like skeletal. Um, can I mean, it seemed to me like she would have been very vulnerable to that. Um, but I liked that she was also she was so sure of herself that it almost didn't matter. Whereas with her best friend Riva, who was really suffering because of it, um, you know, Riva had a horrible eating disorder. Riva hated herself. She was always. Um, trying to change her body. And, and, I, and I thought it would be interesting if there were these, you know, this tension between them because the protagonist has what Riva can't have, but the protagonist is losing herself. So apart from remembering your pirate ancestors, how do you push through these moments where novels can get tough and the story gets lost and, and you get kind of lost in it too? So how do you push through and, and get to the bottom of it or to the end of it? One thing that I did in Lapvona was I made a like a plan. It, it's a it's a book with so many characters, and each character has its own story, and each story has influence on the others' stories. So I really needed to know what I was doing, or else it, I could have made a huge mess. Um, so I was really practical about it. Like I, I, I compartmentalized what, what I needed to be, uh, you know, focused on in terms of pacing and the craft of it. And then knowing that I could trust that structure, I could be sort of more free in the actual drafting of it. So, um... That helped. That helped to have, you know, an underlying some scaffolding. Yeah. And you've spoken quite a bit tonight about like perspective, and I was wondering what was your experience working on the film adaptation for Eileen, and how that medium kind of changed uh, the way you approached those formal issues and anything else. Thanks for asking about that. Um, well, I got really, really lucky because. Uh, well, A, I had an amazing partner 
I co-wrote the adaptation with my husband, who's a brilliant writer. And um, because we know each other so well, and because I wrote the book, I kind of understood Eileen from the inside, and he could kind of reflect back what it seemed like on the outside. So we, you know, it's it it, it was a really intense process, and we worked really closely with the director, who was also very, um, like we were all very in tune about like the tone and the the story and how we wanted to portray Eileen and her relationship with Rebecca. Um, it was kind of surreal. I mean, partly it felt like really natural. I, and and um, but the weirdest moment was I we were on set. And we, sh we shot the movie during Omicron in New Jersey. So we couldn't be there when they were actually shooting. But we were also producers, so we were really involved in the casting and um, the, you know, working with the people who did everything to make the movie actually happen. And they were all amazing. Um, but anyway, the day before we started shooting, I went to Eileen's house and walked up into her attic and sat on her cot and like looked at like the chocolates that the Eileen actor was gonna like chew and spit out. I was like, well, this is totally weird. <laughs> so that was cool. I mean, it was all cool. And the movie, I think, I, I mean, I may have lost all perspective, but I think it's like actually better than the book. Um, <laughs> just saying, it's really exciting. I pictured Lapnova as a book. As a book? Yeah. I mean, sorry, it's a movie. As a movie. Yeah, it is a book. It is a book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's available, but yeah. um, I really, really think it's going to be an incredible film. Actually, all your books will. We'll see. Last question. Oh, no well, pressure. I, I had better make it good. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the guests was talking about moving forward and, and, and how doing something new in the form of a screenplay was bringing you forward. However, looking back, if at all, does your practice as a pianist, did that have any influence on how you write or how you practice writing or how you practice your art now? Definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. In what way? Um, well, um, well I would say number one, the discipline. Number two, the um, incredibly, like probably like insane appreciation for greatness. I mean, if you if you study classical piano piano music, like it, you, you have to get so good before you can be free and like really get into the ecstasy of performance. And so I understood that I needed to practice my ass off as a writer, um, and I did, and I st and I feel like I still do. And I just yeah, sometimes I'm like, sometimes I feel like every book that I do is just a lesson for the next one. Yeah. Thank you all so so much. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, yeah. Thank you Tessa. Thank you.